Welcome to everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rebecca Sanborn-Stone. I'm with the Orton Family Foundation, and you are joining a Community Matters webinar on online fundraising for local action. We're thrilled to have Brandon Whitney with us today. He's a co-founder and COO of IOB in our backyard, which is a fantastic nonprofit organization based in New York, and Brandon's going to share with us a lot of tips and great ideas from IOB and other techniques are doing online fundraising in your community. Uh, so with that, let me turn it over to Brandon. Well, thanks, everyone, uh, um, on our behalf from IOB for joining today. Uh, my name is Brandon Whitney, and as Rebecca said, I'm one of three co-founders of IOB. Um, and what we're sharing with you today is basically a version of a grassroots fundraising workshop that um, that we give here in New York, and we're going to be starting to do these online, so this is kind of a pilot run for us as well. Um, of how well this works as a as a webinar instead of as a in person workshop. So I welcome your feedback on that as well. Um, just a little bit about me quickly. My background is um, mostly in academia and nonprofits, um, particularly at the intersection of sort of civic participation and community issues and the environment. Um, and I've dealt with that um, global scale, global problems, so very local issues, um, and in rural places and in urban places. So um, I have kind of a varied background. Um, and here at IOB, um, I am uh, the COO, but at a small organization, we wear many hats. And one of the main things I do um, is manage a lot of our technology. Um, and I always like to tell people also that um, I didn't have very much fundraising experience except for a little bit of grant writing before we started IOB, so I'm telling you today and sharing with you a lot of things that I've learned along the way. Um, so with that, uh, let's get started. So quickly, I wanted to run through the plan uh, for the next half hour or so. Um, I already told you who I am. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what IOB is. Um, and then we're going to sort of take a step back before we dive straight into online um, uh, fundraising and talk about a little bit of the basics um, for fundraising in general and then go into grassroots fundraising. So we're going to talk about where money comes from. We're going to cover quickly a concept called resource organizing and how that helps us build stronger organizations. Um, and then run through a bunch of basics for grassroots uh, fundraising. We're going to cover um, some examples of successful campaigns and talk specifically about a little bit of the, um, of the online components of online grassroots fundraising, and then quickly, uh, if we have time, also talk a little about how to plan a campaign, um, and then I'll wrap up with some tips at the end. So, um, and as Rebecca said, please chat in questions. Uh, the way that I have my presentation up, I actually can't see them at the moment, so um, I invited Rebecca to interrupt me if anybody's having any problems, or if there's a whole bunch of questions about anything that I just said. So, um, please, uh, please uh, let us know what you think as we're going along. All right, so IOB um, stands for In Our Backyards, um, but we use the name IOB. Um, and it's, for us, it's the opposite of NIMBY. So for those of you that uh, work anywhere near the environmental field, NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard, and it's sort of a negative history uh, in the environmental movement that pushed bad things down the road towards um, often disadvantaged um, populations, uh, communities of color, and lower-income areas such as, you know, where things were cited, uh, power plants and things like that. And IOB is really about the complete opposite of that. It's about saying what's positive, um, what can we do in our neighborhood right here in our backyard together. Um, and so I'm going to share a little bit about our work, um, but only so that you understand kind of more where I'm coming from. 
Um, I always like to point out to people that um, we're a website and an organization made up of real people. Um, we work pretty hard to connect with um, all of the groups that we serve uh, so that they understand that, that we're people, that we're here, and that we're available to help. Um, that being said, we do run a web platform, which you can find at iov.org, iov.org. Um, and I'm just kind of using our example as a stand-in for those of you who work, um, who, who the half of you that said you had done online fundraising before, you might have done it through your own donate page, or perhaps you've used some other crowdfunding platform or um, campaign uh, site. Um, and so uh, I'm sharing you, I'm sharing with you a lot of examples from IOB, but you could translate those into any of the other sites you might use. Um, and I'll talk at the end and if you do happen to do environmental projects uh, anywhere in the United States, um, please do consider using IOB. I'll give you my contact information at the end. But, again, they're just um, specific examples that I think are pretty generalizable. So today you're going to hear me use a word that's kind of a term of art we created. We call it crowd resourcing. Um, and this word comes from a combination of two other words. The first is crowdfunding, which you've probably heard before. Um, another word for that sometimes is microphilanthropy. That's the idea of a lot of small donations pooling up uh, to fund a larger budget. Um, and the other idea is resource organizing. And that comes out of the field of community organizing. And it's the concept that um, as an organization, you don't just need money from your constituents. You often need many more forms of support or action. Uh, and so it's... Boiling it down, it basically means that when we're thinking about the constituents that we're working with, money isn't the only part of the relationship that we have with them in terms of um, an exchange of, of value and time. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, both those ideas later on, but I wanted to introduce the idea of crowd resourcing here. Um, so IOB is a is a crowd resourcing platform. There are environmental projects. Um, across New York City that have been funded. There's a map there. Um, they're all community-based, local, um, very site-specific, many of them, although we have started to have um, some campaigns recently. Um, and all of these projects have been funded um, in the last two years uh, as we've been working in New York. Um, we care particularly about urban areas, so there's an aspect um, to these projects. You'll see they're so highly clustered there. Um, we really think that's cool. It's about people finding about uh, out about things in their neighborhood that they might not have known were happening and, and getting connected to them. But I want to point out that the work of funding these projects um, is actually carried out by the project leader of every one of those dots on the map you see in front of you. Uh, and it's their experience that I'm kind of channeling to, to share with you today. Um, so those projects that you saw so far since we launched IOB, um, uh, project leaders have raised over $270,000 um, in, in small donations. The average has been about $35. Um, so that just sort of points to the, the micro-philanthropy part of this. Um, and I think the web uh, particularly enables this sort of small-scale collaboration for, for funding. Um, and I have to say, uh, recently we made a big announcement and we launched nationally. Um, we still love New York, but there are a lot of small environmental projects across the country that we want to also support, and here in front of you is just a map of our first few national projects. So, again, a pitch, if you are looking to do any kind of online fundraising for an environmental project, um, please be in touch. Okay, um, 
So generally speaking, uh, if you're going to have a uh, an online campaign, you need some kind of destination. A lot of places, uh, that's called a profile. That's what we call it. Um, there are many other crowdfunding platforms out there. Um, you're going to get something that looks almost the same as this. Uh, a place to describe what you're doing, to get some information, certainly a big donate button, some kind of thermometer to keep track of how it's all going. Um, not everyone has a volunteer function. That's something that's um, a little bit unique to our work. But um, in general, this should look uh, pretty familiar if you start uh, looking around at your options. Um, on our site, and I would encourage you to do this other places, you can see the budget. So what exactly you're fundraising for, sometimes people like to know. Um, this is probably kind of small, but this list uh, in front of you goes from shovels to trowels to cement, twine, seedlings, um, everything in between. And once people understand uh, what you need and where it might come from, the, that's half the mystery about uh, what you're going to do uh, with the funds you raise. But we'll get to more about that later. Um, it's really exciting uh, when projects are funded. Oh, this is the wrong slide, actually. There should be some updates here, but it's great to be sharing things. Often you can do that online at the same destination. Um, if you don't end up with a page like this, we'll talk about all kinds of ways to share information with your donors. Um, public recognition for donors is important. So on this slide here, you'll see a lot of names. Um, again, pretty common. Um, and lastly, thank you. Uh, so it's, it's really important to share updates and, and thank you notes. So you'll hear, to hear a, a handwritten thank you note that one of our project leaders um, posted to their donors. Um, and that's kind of what you'll see most places if you're using a crowdfunding site. If you are using, you know, a donation camp, um, I'm sorry, a donation page uh, from your organization um, or some other kind of way to, to collect money online, you might not have these sort of resources at hand, and we'll talk about all kinds of ways later to um, keep your donors updated um, on your work. So I just wanted to share quickly here um, a few stories just to put some faces on all those projects that I showed you before and, and talk about the, the kinds of projects that we've worked with, um, just to, so you have a better sense of where we're coming from. So this is Jules and Martha. They raised over $2,000 to close down um, uh, a street in Astoria along the water um, for a summertime um, community uh, sort of festival called Astoria Water Walk. Um, this is Stefanos. He works with a group called the Western Queens Compost Initiative. They raised $500 to um, buy some tricycles to move compost between races that happen in Central Park in New York City and their um, community garden and compost site in Western Queens. This is a picture of the 78th Street Play Street um, in Jackson Heights, and they raised over $3,000 to close down a portion of 78th Street uh, during the summer. Um, it's uh, an incredibly diverse neighborhood with um, the highest density of children in New York City and the lowest density of places for them to play. So no playgrounds and very little open space. Um, so you can see here they've kind of created playgrounds um, on the street. This is Paula. She raised $300 to print the posters you see behind your head there for a project she called 596 Acres, which helped um, to identify all the vacant lots in Brooklyn and helped residents turn those vacant lots into community spaces. And this is Kristen and Shatia, um, and here are two people who turned one of the vacant lots from Paula's poster into a community garden at 462 Halsey Street. They raised $1,600. 
Uh, this is a group, or the project is called Pollo So Pueblo. It's a, a chicken farm that they're starting in a community garden. The chicken farm is going to be in the back there over top of those folks' heads. Um, that's in Brooklyn. Uh, this is Sam Elise and Naomi. Um, they're from a group called Zello City, um, and they ran a summertime project uh, that got youth out on bicycles um, around the uh, New York City, teaching them about urban planning and also um, bicycling. And this is Lourdes with a group called Hike the Heights. Uh, they raised uh, over $15,000, or sorry, $1,500 to um, lead, uh, this is one of my favorite projects, a hike through the five or six parks in northern Manhattan uh, to get communities together um, to explore their parks, spend time together, and just do some, some uh, exercise. So those are the kind of things we're talking about. Um, in scale, IOB projects tend to be... Um, under $10,000, most of them are under $3,000, um, but this concept of online fundraising or crowdfunding can fund um, $150,000 project if that's what you've got going on. So it really depends on the scale of your organization, the size of your constituency, and, and the kind of project uh, that you want to run. So let's start out at the beginning. Um, and I want to cover some basics about uh, grassroots fundraising, but really about fundraising in general. And the first is to answer the question, where does money come from? Um, so this uh, I found completely fascinating when I first started working uh, in, this, in this field. Um, of all of the money that powers civil society or the social sector, um, which includes basically nonprofits uh, and, and similar organizations, about 85% of it comes from individuals. So that means that not as much comes from corporations or foundations as we think, right? Only about 5% comes from corporate um, sources and about 10% from foundations. And so that means a lot of the money comes from people just like you and me. It comes from individuals. And of that 85%, this statistic varies a bit, but about 80% of that comes from households um, with an average income of under 60, of around or under $65,000 a year. So it's not even from rich people. So this starts to answer the question, where do we look for money? Um, who do I have to know to get money to do, to do small-scale fundraising or online fundraising? And the answer is you probably already know the people. And if you don't know uh, maybe enough people, then the people that you know know people. Um, so we'll talk about later how to turn your base um, into advocates for your cause. The second question I wanted to ask is, why do people give? Um, and we usually do this in a little bit more interactive uh, manner in, in the workshops. And we'll pose this question, when's the last time, think about the last time you made a donation. And I ask people, why did you give? And the answers run the gamut, but it almost always comes back to, because somebody asked me, because I know that person, and I care about them and what they are uh, working on what they believe in, what they're passionate about, even if I don't know all that much about it. I might give to a particular cancer walk, um, even though no one in my family has been affected by that kind of cancer, but my best friend's dad was. So um, it, it's really relational, it's giving to people. People give to things locally. They find out about something that's happening in their neighborhood or in their city, and that impacts them directly. And people give because something is, is urgent. 
not necessarily out of desperation, but because there is an urgent, you know, problem or a campaign or an election is coming up or whatever. There's some sort of um, sense of urgency. And often these these uh, motivations combine into, you know, more more than one um, can be can be the reason that, that you gave. But these are these are very common. Every time we ask this question it boils down to sort of one of these points. Um, so it's important to, to keep that in mind. Um, and so let's talk a bit about how effective certain forms of asking for money is. Um, so we'll see here uh, at the end, or sorry, going back a slide, why people give because you ask them. Well, nobody's going to give if you don't ask. But there's a lot of different ways to ask. So this is, uh, these percentages here, you can think of as sort of the rate of return. Uh, so this means if I ask a group of people to give me a dollar, um, each of these uh, techniques is, is sort of ranked there with the effectiveness. So if I ask two people face-to-face to give me a dollar, on average, 50% um, will do that. Uh, so if you're at an event, for example, and you ask a bunch of people face-to-face to donate, about 50% of them probably will. Um, and that is by far the most effective form of fundraising. Um, after that is uh, at about 25% is a personal phone call, um, and it's especially effective if it follows a letter. So if you were to send someone a letter or an email um, and then give them a call to follow up on it, uh, you can expect about 25%. About 10 to 15% is a personal letter if you were to send a letter after you called them. Uh, 10 to 12% um, return on canvassing, so that's going door to door. Down to 5% using the phone bank technique. Uh, it's about 5% also to um, a personalized email. So one that starts high branded, not dear friends. Um, about 1% for a generic email. So that's the BCC or CC group math email. It's also about 1% for direct mail. And then less than 1% for Facebook and Twitter. And the important thing I wanted to point out here is that um, people often ask us, and, and we certainly have, um, as we built this organization and learned about what it takes to do successful fundraising, people think that there's some sort of secret sauce in social media, that there's a magic way you can raise tons of money if you just know how to use Twitter, right? And there might be some outliers, but in our experience, um, Twitter and Facebook are not uh, effective fundraising techniques. They are, though, really good engagement tools. They're great ways to keep people updated, to get them excited, to keep them informed, um, and that is an important part of the fundraising process, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I also wanted to point out that crowdfunding isn't on this list. So just putting your project online somewhere, whether it's a donate page or on one of the many uh, crowdfunding platforms, is not going to get it funded. <laughs> um, there aren't, as much as we admit it, many donors just waiting out there to donate to your project. So fundraising is work, um, and it's, it's work online or offline. So let's talk a little bit about what that fundraising cycle looks like. Um, we talked about the ask, um, and in this list here, that's solicitation. But if you talk to any development director, um, they're going to going to agree, or anybody who does fundraising for a living or is involved in an organization that does lots of fundraising, there are many parts to the cycle. Uh, and these are the four sort of common words. So 
identification of who's going to give, cultivation of those individuals, solicitation or asking them, and then recognition, which is basically saying thank you. And so here's the other piece that really surprised me when I started learning about how all of this works. Um, if you had to guess where you spent your most time, most people tend to think that you spend lots of time asking, right? It takes a decent amount of work, and it certainly takes sometimes a decent amount of courage to make an ask. But the answer is usually kind of surprising. Turns out fundraising is not all about the ask. Fundraising is all about the relationship. So you'll see there 90% of the time you should spend, and this is rough, right? It changes depending on what you're doing. But in general, 90% of your time should be spent on cultivating your donors, and that means building relationships. You spend a little bit of time identifying who they are, a little bit of time making your asks, and some time saying thank you. But you've got to think about fundraising as relationships. And so now we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, what this points to is that if when you've done a fundraising camp before, uh, campaign before and you spent all your time asking and didn't have the best results, this could be one of the reasons why. Okay, so um, a little bit more about building relationships. Um, this is a little bit of a development uh, fundraising, sort of more institutional way of thinking about things. But uh, you'll hear often in fundraising the notion of a ladder or a staircase or moving people up a spectrum from being one kind of donor to a, a larger kind of donor. And I just want to use this quickly to sort of explain uh, what that means, but also help to talk a little bit more about what a deepened relationship with a donor looks like. And it, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about micro-philanthropy or large-scale philanthropy. Um, so the first step is that you've got to acquire donors. Often that happens when someone gives because uh, you ask. Um, so to, to an initial uh, fundraising ask, they might re respond and, and make a gift. And that's sort of more on impulse, you might say. And the idea is to move them up this uh, really rudimentary ladder here. Um, and the next step is to, to retain them so that donate, donating becomes more of a habit. And the step after that is to upgrade them as they're getting more thoughtful about their gift. They're going to give you a larger gift next year and a larger one after that. But again, that's only going to happen if you build relationships with them. Um, and finally, uh, people thinking about what they want their legacy to be, and they might donate to your organization or to your cause um, through a bequest or some sort of later-in-life gift when they're thinking about their legacy. And if you've had someone with you from the very beginning over the course of many years, um, that's only going to happen if you've developed a relationship with them. So this is, you know, sort of institutional fundraising speak, but it applies on a much smaller scale as well. It can apply over the course of a six-week campaign. So let's start looking at that. Resource organizing um, is, is the word that uh, I brought up at the beginning, and these are just a few of the tenets um, of, of sort of that philosophy or approach. Um, and the first is that fundraising is all about relationship building. Okay, we said that already. And the important thing inside of that nugget of wisdom is that relationships are about a lot more than money. Imagine all the relationships in your life. Um, some of them might involve money changing hands, but there's certainly a lot more going on there. 
So the idea is to not to think about your donors or supporters as only donors or supporters, and certainly not just in terms of how much they gave you. Okay, supporters and advocates can do a lot more than give. We all know this. We want them to take part in our cause. We want them to take action. Um, and remember that that's all part of the cultivation cycle. Um, also that anyone is a potential advocate and fundraiser for you. So there are many ways to turn your closest supporters into uh, great grassroots fundraisers. And we'll talk about some of that later, I hope, if we have time. Um, don't be afraid to ask. A, a tenant of community organizing is that you have to spread the word and you have to inform people before they'll become involved. And that is certainly true of grassroots fundraising as well. Um, be clear. Ask for a specific amount or for people to take a specific action. So it's important that you give people a really clear path in terms of what you need them to do right now. Overwhelming people with choices is, is usually a really bad idea, um, unless they're already very close to the organization um, or to your cause. Uh, and the last one is probably the most important, that a personal touch and your own creativity are really your best assets. You're talking to... Um, your friends, your family, your base. Uh, and so the way that you personalize messages and really speak from your own heart or the hearts of your organization or the founders or the constituents that you're serving um, is the most important thing you bring uh, uh, to, to the conversation you're trying to have with the donor, far more important than um, the technology that you're using or the way that you make your ask. Um, so it's important to let that, your personal touch, come through no matter what you're doing. Okay. Okay. A few quick myths about uh, donating, um, and I think we covered uh, a few of these in, in the last slide, but the idea that um, someone might say, I want to volunteer instead of donate, uh, and you might ask them to donate instead. Generally, that's a pretty bad idea. Um, when someone wants to be involved, you welcome their involvement any way that you can. Um, if we're talking about a short uh, crowdfunding campaign or short uh, short term funding project, you know, someone who asks, How can I volunteer? They could help you do fundraising. Um, and you can talk to them about the importance of, of being involved that way. Another is that people give only to tax deductible causes. Um, it is certainly true that many people write off their, their contributions, but in general, um, at the end of the year many people who say that it's important to them that their donation be tax deductible don't actually write it off at the end of the year. So it is important to, uh, if you can, make sure that the way that you're collecting money has a tax-deductible implication. Um, but it's worth knowing in the back of your mind that uh, it may not be completely necessary because people may give anyway. Um, the next is a myth that asking too many times means that somebody might tell you no. Um, and that's just basically not true. Um, the more times that people are asked by a person that they know, um, the higher the chances are that they'll give. Um, I mentioned this before, that, but more options is not necessarily better. Um, fewer paths of action make it easier for people to, uh, to do what you want them to do. And lastly, that if you get an answer, maybe, or, oh, I'll follow up with you, that means no. Um, you shouldn't assume that it does. Um, and at least they didn't say no to start with, and that is the person that you should follow up with. So don't give up on a maybe. Um, all right, I'll, this is a quick slide, but I just wanted to cover uh, that in the work of sort of local um, community uh, projects, especially if they have it outside, there are some seasons that matter. Um, and 
the most important is just to know that uh, that that nugget at the bottom there that about 90% of donations in this in the sector that we're talking about here are made in the months of December, and of that, about 90% are made on December 30th and 31st. So those are the end of year tax donations. Um, that's not to say that you couldn't use any of the other sort of seasons listed there um, to help motivate uh, motivate your your campaign. All right, so I want to turn now to uh, Iobi talking about crowd resourcing. We've also invented um, a little acronym to help uh, with the process, and we're, we call it Real. Uh, so keeping it real, um, and we're going to go through the R, E, A, and L of Real now. So R is for uh, research. Um, this could definitely also be called homework. Uh, that doesn't make quite as nice of an acronym. And so you need to figure out, um, you need to make your case. People involved in, in professional fundraising talk about a case statement. Um, and you need to build basically the same thing on a smaller scale. So you need to tell people who you are, what makes you unique, what you want to accomplish, um, how you're going to get to your goals, what the impact will be, and who's going to hold you accountable. And you also need to decide um, or do research on who your constituents are going to be, who's going to be impacted, who will be interested in this problem, what might your ideal donor look like? Is it a person from the neighborhood? Is it, um, is it a person who only cares about a certain issue? Um, what, what about your donors will you connect with? Um, what kind of person would that be? Are you generally going to be looking for donors that are below a certain age or above a certain age um, or with a particular kind of background? And what do those people care about? Um, I think Rebecca said this at the beginning, but I just wanted to point out, we'll give you the slide, so, uh, so don't worry about writing this down if any of you are. Uh, the next step is E for engage. Um, and this is really that cultivation step. This is the crucial part. Um, so it's going to be about building relationships and back to that um, the ladder of effective ladder is probably the wrong word there since I showed you another picture, but that list of effective techniques starting with face-to-face at the top and, you know, Twitter and Facebook way at the bottom. So think about building relationships in face-to-face mechanisms first um, as much as you can and then through those other higher touch, um, uh, touch points. So more personal and more direct, certainly the greater the effectiveness. And it's important to create opportunities for people to engage with what you're doing beyond their donation. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but that means events or, as I mentioned before, um, opportunities to volunteer, ways for them to say that they're a donor and a supporter or that they're an advocate of yours. Um, this comes from that idea of, um, of resource organizing. And some basics about the communication that might, you might use for engagement. You, know, you want to make people feel involved in the project. Um, you need to think about what the steps are to build that relationship with your donors um, and give people stories of what their money has accomplished. Um, that's, that's a form of saying thank you also, which we'll get to. So the A in real is for ask. Um, and this is kind of uh, the most obvious part. We talked a decent amount about all the ways you can ask, but also that it's um, not something, it's not where you should spend most of your time um, these are some things that I see uh, at, at, at different fundraising resources. People talk a lot about all of the ways that uh, you can have the right ask, so the right person, the right prospect, the right amount, the right cause, the right time, the right way. Um, and I don't think it's worth getting too hung up on all this, but I think the, the message is basically that 
there are certain times when it, it might be better to, to make an ask than others and to just sort of take into account all of the context. Um, so if you're having an event, when is the best time to make an ask? Or um, is asking someone for money one week after they just made a donation a good idea? Probably not. So it's all contextual um, depending on, on where you're coming from. And then in terms of what people might say when you uh, make your asks, obviously everyone's hoping that they say yes, that they give you what you ask for. If you're asking for a specific amount, say 20 bucks, um, it's that they gave you 20 bucks, but there's certainly also the, the um, option that they'll give you 10 bucks, um, and that's great. Um, I'll think about it as another answer, and certainly so is no. Um, another tip from sort of professional development and fundraising folks is that you should not be discouraged by a no. You should be excited by it. So if you ask 50 people um, uh, to contribute to something, and on your first first ask, uh, 30 of those people say no, then your goal should be to turn those 30 people into people that say yes. Um, keep a list of all the people who you solicit and who say no, um, and uh, put it up, you know, by your in your desk or, or on your wall somewhere at home. And uh, that's that's who you should be focusing on as you make the rest of your ask. And the, the last step L is for love, um, in a more colloquial sense. So, like, give somebody some love. Uh, and the idea is that you would want to send thank you notes, um, establish um, some sort of uh, level of honor for, for people who, who contribute at a larger level or make a bigger gift, um, you know, like a, a supporter circle or, or gold, gold group or something like that. Um, staying in touch with all donors to let them know what the donation is achieving, asking them for their advice in difficult situations so they feel like their opinion matters, and really bringing them in as advocates and speakers. Um, you know, uh, your donors know that's what motivated them to donate. So if you have someone who's really passionate wants to help and is already give them, ask them if you can talk to them about why they gave and, and use that information to help build a stronger case um, as you move forward. Um, and now just quickly I wanted to throw up a slide of what a campaign might look like. Um, and again, this is completely context-specific, but um, for us anyway, someone who's looking to raise about $1,000 to $3,000, it can take about six weeks. Um, certainly can happen faster, and it can definitely take longer, but on average, it runs about six weeks, so that's a month and a half. Um, we found that uh, a project of that size is usually most effective if you have a team working together rather than one person, um, and in our experience, teams of at least four uh, tend to be uh, the most effective. We'll talk a little bit in bit about email um, later, but the idea here is that when you're thinking about fundraising as a campaign, you actually want to plan out your communication steps. So, all right, we're going to ask, if you've done your identification, you want to plan the times that you're going to do your asks um, and think about when you're sending your email. Um, people tend to read emails um, on weekday mornings more often than other times. It's also the most often time that people take action on those emails because they tend to be sitting at work. Um, a really good idea, and we'll talk about this um, uh, in, in a few slides, is to integrate a face-to-face opportunity with the fundraising campaign, which gives you the opportunity to make a face-to-face ask of someone, even if they've already been asked by email. So make a volunteer opportunity. Uh, have a volunteer work day. Grow a house party. Uh, throw a party in general. 
um, even if it's really small and you just have, you know, pizza and soda or pizza and beers, um, once people see that other people are donating uh, or contributing to the cause and really get to know you and um, maybe your founders or uh, the co-sponsors of your campaign, um, that even if they don't give at the event, that cultivation opportunity that you're having with them makes them much more likely to give when you ask them again later in the campaign. Um, and then the last point there on timing, you can raise um, half your funds in the last week. Um, in fact, that often happens. Most of the money or a large percentage of the money tends to come in in a small amount of time at the end, and that's pretty true across fundraising campaigns online. Um, but it's important to do that around a deadline and to let people know, hey, the campaign's almost over. There's only X amount of days left. Help us meet our goal. Um, and so you really need to have your communications planned with folks in that last week. All right, a few advanced uh, ideas. Um, back to building a team. Um, four to eight people. Um, and the key point, I think, here is about um, the different networks that they have. Um, and different skills that they have to share. And both with different networks, different backgrounds, means that you have a larger pool of potential uh, potential donors. Um, anyone who likes throwing events or throwing parties are natural fundraisers, so I really encourage you to get some of those people on your team um, and be really clear about what the expectations are of being part of this team. Um, you know, for example, that you're going to make 30 to 50 direct asks by phone or by letter or through email or however, um, you know, so that people understand what it is that uh, they're going to be doing and are, are really ready to make that commitment. Uh, make, make sure everyone's on the same calendar. So if you do plan out uh, your campaign, I encourage you to do it with, with your team. Um, and if there's some way to sort of keep them all accountable to that, to that uh, schedule. Um, and obviously, the last one's kind of a no-brainer, but if you've got a group of people who's getting more creativity and talent uh, than there would be if you're doing it by yourself. Um, another slightly harder to do uh, thing is to really integrate the mission of what you're trying to get done with the technique that you use for fundraising. Um, and this is kind of hard to express, but if you are a bike organization, for example, um, trying to raise money for, you know, a, a biking project with youth, you might invite your donors to come on a bike ride and give them a tour of part of the city you don't think they've ever seen, do it by bike, and charge them $20. Um, and that kind of, like, it's that sort of idea where you create a, a fundraising opportunity that's part of what you do um, tends to really be great cultivation, um, but it also gives people a really... Um, uh, sort of first-person experience understanding of, of what you do. They might think biking is is nice and it's great the kids bike, but if they've never biked around the city, um, you could really change their mind if you get them out uh, out one Saturday morning or something like that. Uh, not to dwell too much on that example, but that's basically the idea. Um, another idea is to, and this goes back to the campaign uh, that we were talking about before, but to really integrate um, work days or volunteer events or any sort of event with an online campaign, um, which gets to the point I was making before about how people can engage with you face-to-face, -face, see your cause, see the site that you work at, um, see some of the people that you serve, um, and then, you know, as a volunteer, and then come back later and make a donation. Or maybe they'll come volunteer twice before they donate. 
But the more the more face-to-face opportunities you give them, the better they get to know what you do and what you're doing and who's working with you. And again, people give to people. So um, that's a really important idea. Um, here's some more ideas for events, but I'm running out of time, so uh, you'll get these in the slides. And there are many more resources I can send to you guys if um, if you're interested in events as a fundraising technique. So let's turn quickly at the end to um, to online. Now you'll notice a lot of what I said so far. I talked about email. Um, I guess I didn't say too much about Facebook or Twitter, but um, the, the the general idea here is that. Online is just where the people are giving you the money, so you shouldn't think about it too much differently than passing a jar um, or a bucket or a hat at an event um, or about someone mailing you a check. It's all just the way that people are sort of making their gift. And all of those other rules about uh, cultivation um, and about saying thank you still apply online. Um, so quickly, a few ideas for effective emails. Um, much, much more effective to address people individually. So, hey, Brandon is always better than hey, friends, like I said at the beginning. So, avoid um, sending a mass email where everyone is CC'd uh, or, or we're CCC'd. Um, it takes a little bit more time to address each email individually, but you'll get a much better result. Uh, and even better if you can say something more personalized about you know, the last time you saw that person or, hey, I know we haven't talked in a while, but I wanted to reach out to you because I know you're a teacher. Um, Anything that makes them feel like you're not just carbon copying them um, is, is much more effective. Make a compelling case. Include the link to whatever that destination is that I talked about at the beginning, so your profile or your donate page. Put it several times in the email, but make sure that you're only including one. Um, you should plan to send an email like that about four times during the campaign, but different versions. Um, and it's okay to keep sending the email over and over to people who didn't donate. Um, it helps them understand how important this is to you um, and may eventually uh, lead them to give you a gift. Um, make the right size ask. So this is where uh, the personalization part is important. So if you know that you're writing a bunch of people with different giving levels, don't ask them all for the same amount. Um, but do ask for a specific amount. Um, and again, uh, thank people in advance and make it a coordinated campaign. Um, okay, so next, that was email. Now we're going to look quickly at social media. Um, but as I said, um, social media isn't the best platform for fundraising. Um, people do not click from a tweet uh, or from a Facebook post um, and, and make a donation very often. It just isn't effective in that way. But it is really great at giving them information. It's great for cultivating those relationships. It's a great engagement tool. Um, and it also allows for a decent amount of interaction, right? So somebody can share uh, or like something that you uh, or retweet something that you've put out there and conversations can start around uh, around those, those pieces of social media. That's the whole idea of social media. Um, and important there uh, is to be genuine. Um, make the supporters or your potential donors feel like insiders to their cause. Let them know what's going on behind the scenes and how you're doing. Um, it helps them feel like they're a part of the project. So share your campaign, you know, successes, share some of your failures, share that you had a hard time, share that you had a great time, share that you're really excited that you had a lot of people come out this weekend. Um, you know, that kind of information. It's not, you don't just want to make ask after ask after ask. Um, and in fact, you really shouldn't through, through social media. Um, 
and pictures of the projects um, are super important. So especially if you're communicating in, in you know, short amounts of, of uh, short text like Twitter or Facebook, you know, pictures are great. Link people back to pictures that you've taken. Um, specifically for Facebook, um, if you've got the time and ability and, and it fits your base, um, or your your group of potential uh, donors that you've identified, um, you can make a fan page for your project. It's a great place to to keep people involved, have them uh, you know like your page, and then they'll get um, get the updates that you post. You should post something on the order of one to two updates per day. You don't have to post that many, but you shouldn't post any more than that. Um, you can make many updates on Twitter in a day, but you shouldn't make twenty updates on uh, on on Facebook. Facebook is a great place to share photos and videos um, because that content is shared shared around. Encourage people who make a donation to share some of the stuff that you're that you're posting. Um, and Facebook can be a great way to coordinate uh, volunteer events as well. Um, if again, if it if that's where you think your donors are, um, if you're working with a population um, who's not on Facebook, then clearly this is probably it's not going to be a very effective tactic, even for for cultivating. Um, and then Twitter, um, you know, you're, you're basically giving people tiny, tiny sound dates, and you're usually encouraging them to go somewhere else. Um, so we're here to quick tweets um, about IOB projects, right? And they're directing their donors to check out their project or see a video or something like that. Um, Twitter is mostly about the destination that they're going to arrive on when they click on something that you send them. It's also a great way to say thank you and publicly acknowledge people who just made a gift. So, hey, thanks, Tom Anderson, for your recent gift. You know, you're the best. Um, people love seeing their name out there like that, and it's a great, quick way to acknowledge people. Um, and lastly, if you have the time and energy, it can take a decent amount of resources, but video can be a really effective uh, fundraising tool. I would say that getting a video out there, no matter how you share it, um, brings you much closer to the face-to-face experience. And if that video ends with, won't you please contribute today, um, if everyone gives 20 bucks, we can reach our goal. That's almost the same. It's not quite the same, but it's almost the same as having that ask, um, having that been made face-to-face or, or in the same room with you. Um, people focus a lot on what's the best thing to do uh, when they're making a video is to make it go viral, and I would encourage you not to worry about that. <laughs> you want a video that uh, conveys the passion that you have for your cause, that tells people what you're doing, um, and that invites them to get involved. Um, if you spend too much time trying to make it the coolest, hippest video, um, you might forget those most important points. Okay, so um, lastly, just quickly here to recap and, and give you some takeaways. Fundraising is nurturing relationships, and you can do that online, you can do that offline, and you can do that both. Um, try thinking about your fundraising work uh, as, as what we call resource organizing um, or crowd resourcing. And that means, you know, don't don't think about all the people that you're trying to get involved in your work only as donors and acknowledge them as, as important parts of how you build a base and build power for your organization or for the cause um, that you're working on. Um, everything that we know about fundraising and grassroots fundraising applies to online fundraising. Same cycle, same amount of time, all the rules are the same. Um, a tip from us to keep it real, uh, so that's research, engage, ask, and love. Um, build a team. It's far more effective if you do this in a team. Plan your campaign ahead of time. 
much easier to do that if you've got a team um, and uh, integrate online, offline. And finally, that there's no magic in social media. Let it work for you. Don't stress over it. So if it's, a, it's an effective way to communicate with the kinds of people that you're looking to bring into your cause or to your project, then absolutely do it. But if it's not, then you start tweeting. So anyway, I think that's it. Um, I am running a little over time, so I'll stop now and say thanks for listening and good luck with your work and open it back up to questions. I'm going to get out of my full screen here, so Rebecca, hopefully I can see um, if anybody has chatted anything in, but I will turn it over to you to moderate if you'd like. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Brandon, for that amazing overview. Um, lots of great content about how to fundraise on a whole lot of different options and levels. Um, so we're down to a little over five minutes, about eight minutes, that we can take some questions here. I do have a few that have been submitted over email already, so I wanted to start with a couple of those. Um, to those of you listening on the line, we'll try to take a couple of you, too. So if you do have a question that you want to ask Brandon, you can raise your hand on the platform, or you can type a question into the chat. Uh, let me start with one that we got online, though, which is really a great one. So from Cheryl in Colorado, who's wondering how to develop email contacts, and I suppose that would go for non-email contacts as well, beyond family and friends. I think a lot of people who start with a small project don't have a ton of contacts, and you need to know who you can go out and ask. Any thoughts on that, Brandon? Um, what we encourage people to do, and this goes back to the idea of having a team, um, obviously, you know, if you've got four people, then you have four times as many uh, friends and family, but... Um, the, the other good option is to find um, partner organizations um, to help just spread spread the word. Um, so if you're at, an, at a formal organization, you can find partners to include your campaign in their in their email newsletter. You may not get their the actual emails, but they can certainly broadcast it for you. Um, another good idea is that once you've got your team together, to do a little uh, network mapping together. People, people often forget, this happens to me all the time, they, they forget about a group of people. They'll forget about their college alumni network or they'll forget about their church um, when they're thinking of who they know. Um, and so I would just encourage you to do that sort of, if you do have a team together, kind of brainstorm together and often you'll help each other realize that there's a bunch of people you know you might not, you might not remember, um, you know, if you were to sit down and do that by yourself. Turn to a slightly different topic, and I'm going to combine a couple of questions we've received as well. We have a question from Gloria in Vermont, who says she lives in a community in a county where they were very devastated by Hurricane Irene and are trying to approach people for funds for water quality monitoring. Gloria is wondering how to approach people who either have given before or were so affected by the flood that they really don't have any more resources to give. And I have a similar question from someone in Colorado who talks about living in a very rural county but also relatively poor, and is really wondering how to raise funds in that environment where people just don't have money to give, or seemingly don't. Um, those are definitely sensitive um, issues and, and ones about which I think it's best to be really thoughtful, which it sounds like uh, you are. Um, the only experiences that I'll share are just that as we uh, build IOB and talk to more project leaders, you know, many of them are working in, in underserved communities uh, here in New York City. And um, I found it uh, humbling and heartening that many of them wanted the money to come from their own neighborhood. Um, now, that doesn't always mean that they're going to be able to, um, 
you know, reach their full budget. So if they're trying to raise $5,000, it might not all come from their neighborhood, but it was really important to them that many people in their neighborhood gave at whatever level they could. Um, so I think one, one insight there is just to remember that people who are making a contribution are your advocate and your supporter at, what, at, at any level that they contribute. So it's, for me anyway, it's about making it okay to contribute at, you know, $5 um, or even $1 or $2. And, and there's nothing more powerful than saying, you know, 50% of this neighborhood is given uh, to this campaign. Um, that The more that people know that people like them are giving, this kind of ripple effect starts to happen. Um, and then the only other thing that I can say is, is that, you know, this uh, crowdfunding idea isn't always the only way to get to get money. So I think um, what I said before about how people often wanted their own communities to contribute could be used with the local community foundation or with a church or with someone else. You could have a matching fund and say, if we raise $1,500 from our community where everybody gives five bucks, will you match it with $1,500 uh, or something like that? There are ways to get creative. Um, but I think that in engaging those people, especially if you're working on an issue, you know, related to their neighborhood or to, to the community or county, um, having them as advocates is an important part of sort of base building for your work. And that goes more back to um, to, to the idea of, of resource organizing and, and community organizing than it does just straight fundraising. But those are some thoughts. Yeah, great suggestions on a really difficult question there. Um, I think we can talk about one more, and I have one question that's come in in several different forms from a few callers, from Marie in Florida, Todd in Colorado, and several other people, actually. Uh, there are a lot of folks wondering if you could talk for a minute about really successful projects, and that's a really positive note to end on. Could you share any tips or characteristics of them, or even a, a great success story that might be a good model for what success really looks like in this film? Yeah. Um the I feel like I've said this a few times, but the the idea of having some kind of event in the middle of your campaign, you know, um, in a general way, is always a good idea. But the the most successful project in terms of how quickly or how much they fundraised um, that we've worked with um, have all done that. So I really encourage you guys to do that. That bike example that I gave actually wasn't a hypothetical one, um, and and that I think that's just really cool. Um, people coming out to a garden to be part of a community garden before they donate. Um, they'll have an event, uh, you know, like come have some fresh veggies and cheese or something one summer afternoon in the garden with a suggested $10 donation, which if enough people come completely covers the cost of the food and you sort of build donating into the space. And they're like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Um, it's great that people are growing food here. Yeah, I totally want to contribute. And they also got to be outside. Um, those sort of anytime you can make your project into an experience where people really understand what you're working on, um, I think I think all the better. And then the other thing I'll just share is that some of the I talked about videos and they really can be powerful if you have the right ways to, to create them and share them, but they don't need to be complicated to make. So you can sit in front of your computer with your you know your webcam on or use one of those foot, foot uh, sorry foot cams um, or even your smartphone. And just sit down, you, you and your supporters, if you're working on a site, go to the site. And you just have to record the ask that you would make as though someone was standing right in front of you, a good friend. Um, just record that. And I have seen some amazing videos uh, 
really generate uh, a lot of donations that took, you know, very little time and no money to make. Um, and those are great things to really test out the social media waters with um, if, if, you're, if you're not sure what kind of content to share. Fabulous I could keep going, like so I'll stop there. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, well, it is 5 o'clock. We want to respect everybody's time. Thank you all so much for joining us on this call, and a special thanks to Brandon for being a guinea pig and trying out a webinar with us and having such a great contact to share with everyone. We really hope this will help you fundraise in your communities and your local projects, and we hope you'll tell us about them. Please be in touch. Shoot us an email. Tell us what you're doing or what's not working or what you could still use help with. Um, a couple logistical notes to end on. We will be sharing Brandon's slides with all of you, and this all goes well, a video, so you can actually go back and listen to the audio from this program. Um, I think Brandon said he'd be willing to be in touch if people need additional resources or have questions specific about your project that you didn't get a chance to address today. So I'll be sending around a follow-up email. You can watch for that, and you can always be in touch with me. I'm Rebecca Stone, again, rstone at orton.org if you have questions or need help. So with that, we'll end it. Huge thank you again to Brandon. We really appreciate it, and hope you all join us for the next Community Matters call. Thanks, and have a great day.